Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and if, like me, you enjoy receiving free stuff, stay tuned to the very last dying moments of this episode to find out how one lucky, lucky listener can win a DVD copy of this week's film. I do this because I'm very kind, I'm very generous and because I accidentally bought two copies. And that film that one listener will win on DVD is called Saturday Night Review from 1937, a film I've only recently discovered, and I'm very glad I did. Starring blonde bombshell Sally Gray, it's set in the not very seedy underbelly of a seedy Soho nightclub and is a roll call of long-forgotten cabaret and variety acts of the period. I was very pleased that I managed to entice Dr Lawrence Napper of King's College London to come on the show to talk about Saturday Night Review. Lawrence is the author of a book called British Cinema and Middlebrow Culture in the Interwar Years, so this film, I correctly calculated, would be right up his street. I was even more pleased to find out that this was a film that had hitherto flown under his radar until he was alerted to it by one of the thousands of staff here at Soho Bikes Towers. You can hear Lawrence's take on Saturday Night Review in the second half of the show, and before that, we stick with the club theme for a return visit to the show from author Rob Baker. Way back in episode 10, Rob and I climbed the clock tower of St Anne's Church in Soho, there to discuss the 1920s reputed drug baron Brilliant Chang. This time I met up with Rob online to hear about the history of the Café de Paris, the famous London nightclub patronised by the rich and famous, which was the template for one of the clubs in Saturday Night Review. We also hear from Rob about an uncredited dancer in the film, whose name will always be associated with the Café de Paris. Who is that uncredited dancer, and why will his name always be associated with that club? They're two very good questions, and you'll be finding out the answers as soon as I've changed the gramophone record from this, the much-admired Soho Bikes theme tune, to... Just... just need to... To this. This is My Canary Has Circles Under His Eyes, the 1931 hit from one of the Café de Paris' regular singers, Marion Harris. This old world is slipping fast How much longer can we last Have we gone completely off our door? 
Marion was a great favourite of one of the club's frequent patrons, the then Prince of Wales. He once had a lackey take a message to Marion backstage, requesting that she join HRH at his table for a nightcap and, presumably, for some afters. Marion, who was an American citizen, declined the request and said, if your customers get to know you too well, they don't come back and pay money to see you. The illusion is destroyed. I believe this is what the kids call a sick burn, and I found it in Beautiful Idiots and Brilliant Lunatics, Rob Baker's 2015 book about some of London's lesser-known history. It's in a chapter about the famous night during the Blitz when the Café de Paris received an unwelcome delivery in the form of a couple of German bombs which forced it to close for the rest of the war. It reopened in 1948 and only shut its doors for good very recently because of the pandemic, but I think it's fair to say in all that time since it reopened, the club never quite recaptured the magic of those early, heady interwar years. To find out more about the bombing of the Café de Paris and about one of its star performers, I spoke to Rob Baker online. I asked him to begin by filling me in on how the Café de Paris started and how it became the place to be seen in London between the wars. Uh, well, the Café uh, de Paris opened originally sort of towards the end of 1924 and it was a man called George Foster who was actually a, a theatre agent and he actually was looking for a venue to show off his new cabaret artistes and dance bands and he came across a restaurant called the Elysee on uh, Coventry Street which is a few yards from Piccadilly Circus and with a man called Captain Robin Humphreys he bought the lease and uh, they had the good sense to take on uh, Martin Paulson who was the Danish maitre d' from the Embassy Club which was the smartest place to go at the time and the Café de Paris, as they called it, uh, featured a glamorous staircase that led down to a basement-level dance floor and restaurant. Not lower than basement level, really. It was like two floors down, underground. It was um, decorated to be a, almost a replica of the Palm Court on board the ill-fated Lusitania, the RMS Lusitania. So business was actually pretty awful at the beginning. It wasn't doing very well at all. Uh, Martin Paulson, the maitre d', contacted the Prince of Wales. He'd once promised him that if he ever had his own restaurant, he, he would come along. And one Wednesday evening, the prince made good his promise and dropped by. He was uh, accompanied by his usual motley entourage, which included uh, Mrs. Frieda Dudley Ward, who was um, quite a long-term mistress. He'd already been seeing her for several years, and she was the wife of a liberal MP who sort of turned a blind eye to the affair for years and years and years. And uh, he brought along a major fruity Metcalf, And finally his aide, the one-armed Brigadier General, Gerald Trotter, known to his friends as G. This is the Prince of Wales who later abdicated the throne and hung out with Hitler and that kind of thing. Yes, that's the man. But then he was he was like a, he was seen as a very stylish, you know... Uh, Boulevardier about town. Yeah, sort of. Um, because he uh, came along to the Café de Paris, it became the fashionable place to be seen. And it was... Uh, the habitual home of the far set or the smart set or, or or as we would call them nowadays the bright young things not long after cafe de paris opened the film star louise brooks which about a year before her first film and she was only 17 uh, was the first person to dance the charleston in london and it went down uh, incredibly well she lived on pall mall in a flat on pall mall was a bit lonely and left after about two months and that was the only time she ever came to the UK. So in the film we're discussing on Saturday Night Review, there's these two nightclubs, one of which is kind of based on the Café de Paris, we think. It's this smart Mayfair nightclub. And there's a dancer who features in the film, and he's not credited in the credits of the film, but 
Twitter followers, friends of the show, have convinced me that it's Ken Snake Hips Johnson about whom you have written. Tell yeah. me about Snake Hips because he sounds like he was an enormous star, and it seems odd that he wasn't credited in the film. So Ken Snake Hips Johnson, it's a great name, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, he he was born in uh, Guyana, which was uh, then in the in the nineteen thirties was known as British Guyana. And uh, he'll always be associated with the Café de Paris. His name, Snake Hips, is what people always say is because of his amazing dancing. But there was another singer who performed at the Café de Paris during the uh, 1930s called Marion Harris, who was a, a white American woman. And uh, she was known as the first white woman to sing the blues, although it doesn't sound very bluesy if you if you hear it now. And she recorded with Billy Mason and the Café de Paris band, a song called My Canary's Got Circles Under Its Eyes. And one part of the lyrics goes, I thought he'd never do anything wrong. Now he does snake hips the whole day long. My canary has circles under his eyes. And I, I suspect the snake hips came from those lyrics as well because she performed at the Café de Paris, you know, regularly in the 1930s. Snake Hips Johnson was um, played on the BBC quite a lot with his uh, West Indian Dance Orchestra. He was a big deal towards the end of the 1930s and hence why he might have been inserted in this film, perhaps. So along comes World War Two. So the, by, by the beginning of the war in 39, the club is established as the place to go to. It's, it's at its peak still. Yeah. Um, and how did it conduct itself during the war? It was still the place to go to for the rich and famous and, and unlike a, a lot of nightclubs and theatres, it remained open at the very beginning of the Second World War. It was always said that the dance floor was so far underground that it would be completely safe in an air raid. This sort of fact was certainly not discouraged by Martin Paulson, who called Café de Paris the safest and gayest restaurant in town, even in air raids, 20 feet below ground. Which turned out to be yeah. not 100% true, as it turned out on uh, the night of March the 8th, 1941. Uh, yes. So also, in August uh, 1940, a few, a few months before you mentioned, um, the, the Nazi propagandist William Joyce, Lord Haw Haw, sneered at the well-to-do having fun in the West End. He broadcast one night the plutocrats and the favoured lords of creation were making the raid an excuse for their drunken orgies and debaucheries in the saloons of Piccadilly and the Café de Paris. As the son of a profiteer baron put it, they won't bomb this part of town, they want the docks. But they did. They didn't go after the docks on the 8th of March 1941, they dropped bombs in the West End. So around 9.30, Johnson was having drinks with some friends uh, at the Embassy Club, Martin Paulson's old place in Old Bond Street. And uh, his show at the Café de Paris would start at 9.45. So he, he had to half run, which might seem OK, but of course it was, it was the blackout then. So it was very difficult to, to run anywhere. Um, uh, sirens were already sounding at this point and the air raid had already begun when he got on stage on time and a West Indian dance orchestra started playing Oh Johnny, Oh Johnny, How Can You Love, which is his sort of theme tune, really. And then uh, a bomb exploded, and it was the end for Ken Snake Kips Johnson and uh, also Martin Paulson. So it was a direct hit. Yeah, I think it, there was a cinema, the Rialto Cinema above it, and it came through there, and I think it came through a sort of um, from the kitchen, a chimney, whatever they're called, and it came down through there. So it was just a horrible coincidence. It managed to hit the one point where it could come straight down it uh, uh, underground where it exploded. So initially, because of censorship, it wasn't really described at all. It certainly wasn't mentioned that the Café de Paris had been uh, bombed. I think Ken Snake Hips had only been singing for five minutes uh, when the uh, two bombs, it said, came through and exploded, and they actually exploded on the dance floor. 
Time magazine described it a few weeks later. American magazine described it a few weeks later. Um, and they wrote, handsome flying Johnnies, naval jacks in full dress, guardsmen territorials and just plain civics sat making conversational love. Uh, whereas the uh, Manchester Guardian, this is what this is what they wrote. They wrote this, but they they still weren't allowed to mention the Cafe de Paris. But they mentioned that some place had been bombed. The band was playing, and the floor was crowded with couples dancing. Suddenly, there was a flash, like the fusing of a great electric cable. Then, in the darkness, masonry and lumps of plaster could be heard crashing to the ground. I was blown off my feet, but the sensation was that of being pressed down by a great big hand. The air was filled with the smell of powder and dust. Among the chaos next to the microphone through which he had just been singing, with a red carnation still in the buttonhole of his white dinner jacket, lay the leader of the band. There was not a mark on his body, but his head had been blown clean off. Ken Snake Hips Johnson, only 26 years old, had tragically reached the end of his meteoric career. The first special constable on the scene was a man called Ballard Barkley. Yes, well known to Barkley. I think he's yeah. Barkley, yeah. He was in a film that we talked about a few episodes ago, playing a kind of ex-military police officer, but he's most well-known, of course, as the Major from Faulty Towers. Yes, the racist Major. Yeah. He was the first on the scene, so he saw the decapitated uh, snake hips and the elegantly dressed people still sitting at tables, looking like they're almost in conversation but covered in dust and stone dead. And he was shocked to see looters mingling with the firemen and the police cutting the fingers from the dead to get at expensive rings. Few people survived. The author, Mary Noel Stratfield, who usually wrote as Noel Stratfield and occasionally as Susan Scarlett, and about a year later uh, published a book called I Ordered a Table for Two. And uh, she used her experience of the terrible bomb at the Café de Paris in her book. And, and the nightclub in her book was called La Porte Verte. And uh, a character called Claire was in the ladies' room redoing her makeup after crying. When uh, And this is her describing what happened. And I presume it must have been what happened when she was there. So this is, what, this is how she wrote it. There was a rush of air. The ground rocked. The lights went out. Then after an appreciable pause, there was a roar, followed by cascading crashes. Lie down, Claire called, but it was a force of habit, for both she and the attendant had been thrown flat. Oh, God, oh, God, the attendant moaned. Claire's bag was still in her hand. She opened it and found her pencil torch. She turned it on and saw with relief that it was not broken. She threw its beam around the room. The mirrors were cracked and there was some broken glass on the floor and part of the ceiling was hanging down. She went over to the attendant. You hurt? No, miss. Has it hit the building? I think so. Claire made her way to the restaurant. She turned her torch round. The room was full of smoke and dust. It was a merciful pool. She had become used to horrible sights, but what little she saw as she stumbled towards turned her cold. As she got near where the tables had been, progress became more difficult. In one place, she had to clamber over a pile of ceiling. She felt a brute not to stop and try to help some of the moaning, screaming shapes lying around her. But help was arriving. That's um, quite harrowing, isn't it? And how many people died altogether? Do we know? I don't think anyone really knows because it wasn't really reported properly. So no one knew how many people were there, really. It's about 80, they reckon. About 80, okay. And after that, the Café de Paris remained closed uh, throughout the Second World War. It didn't open until 1948 when... uh, it was graced by royalty again, notably Princess Margaret. Yeah, the lovely Princess Margaret. The niece of uh, the Prince of Wales. Yeah, she's cropped up in this podcast as well before. <laughs> and she has. Since writing your book, you've discovered more information about Snake Kips Johnson, haven't you? Yeah, so... The writer um, Stephen Bourne. Stephen Bourne, he, he wrote in uh, 2017, I think, in a book called uh, Fighting Proud. He mentions that Ken was in a relationship with a man called uh, Gerald Hamilton, 
so uh, Ken was gay. So he started seeing him in 1940, and Gerald Hamilton was what's described as a British memoirist, critic and internationalist, also known as the wickedest man in Europe. Quite an interesting chap. Yeah, obviously. even more wicked than Alistair Crowley or something. Yeah, <laughs> Hitler. Was, to be more wicked than Hitler at that time is pretty good going. Well, Dom, I have just ordered his biography okay. <laughs> to, to find out. Uh, so uh, Gerald and uh, Ken moved into a house in Kinnerton Street in Belgravia. He also bought a cottage called Little Basing in Bray in Berkshire. And uh, that's where they used to go and stay. How public was this relationship? Because it was That's, illegal then, wasn't it? Yes, totally. I think probably more blind eyes were shown during the Second World War. I read that um, Gerald Hamilton was um, at the cottage in Bray when it says here he received a phone call uh, on the 9th of March 1941 informing him of, him of Johnson's death and asking him to come to identify the body, which I thought, really? But, you know, maybe Ken, there was no one else who could, but um seems strange to me. So from then on, apparently, Hamilton kept a picture of Johnson in a white tuxedo with white satin facings at all times with him, calling him my husband. Thank you to Rob Baker for coming on Soho Bites. Always a pleasure. Rob's book that I mentioned, Beautiful Idiots and Brilliant Lunatics, is one of two he's written that take a sideways look at 20th century London history. For more details about those and about his websites, check out the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. One of the great things I found about making this show is discovering utter gems of film that I otherwise would not have come across. This is most certainly the case with today's film, the little-known Saturday Night Review from 1937. It's a light musical comedy starring Sally Gray and Billy Milton and features turns from several slightly odd variety acts who were popular then but are now long forgotten. Does anybody remember Stanford and McNaughton, Reg Bolton, the Royal Kilty Juniors, and how about this duo? A bizarre pair called Bennett and Williams who do their routine in tatty evening wear while playing strange musical instruments called, I think, stroh violins. Oh, you play an instrument? <laughs> yes, I went to a wedding with this last night. Went to a wedding? <laughs> I was the best man. Best man at a wedding? Mm. Did you give the bride away? I... I say, did you give the bride away? Well, I could have done, but I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> we played... Did I make him laugh, did he, Bill? That's Never. Right. <laughs> we played all kinds of games at this wedding. Games? Yeah, everybody had to make funny faces, and whoever made the funniest face won the first prize. Whoever made the funniest face won, won the, the first prize. Yes. Well, who won it? Your wife. My wife. Aye. I bet she was pleased. She wasn't. She wasn't playing. What? <laughs> Listen, sit down. I'll sing you something on the one string violin, shall I? Sing a little number. I know she loves me. How do I know? I know she loves me because she told me so. In the evening by the moonlight, I hear them darkies singing. 
Down by the dear old sunny shore, oh, sunny shore, oh, sunny shore. One for luck, Bill, oh, sunny shore. Ah, kiss me. I don't want to kiss you. Get out. Scripted by Vernon Clancy and directed by Norman Lee, the plot of Saturday Night Review is fairly thin and it goes like this. There are two nightclubs in London, both called Moons. One of them is in Mayfair and it's swanky and luxurious. Basically, it's the Café de Paris by another name. And the other is in Soho. The Soho Moons is run by a hot-headed Italian, is there any other kind, called Monty. And the place is much less swanky than its Mayfair namesake. The clientele are less well-heeled and it's the haunt of some quite unthreatening gangsters as well as all sorts of foreign types, some of whom, it appears, are ladies who hail from the island of Lesbos, if you know what I mean. Our two leads, a singing duo called Mary and Jimmy, played by Sally Gray and Billy Milton, are the star attraction at the Soho Moons and are in love. Mary's father disapproves of her singing career and, in fact, of women working in general. But his disapproval softens slightly when he hears that she sings at Moons because he assumes this means the Mayfair Moons and Mary does nothing to disabuse him of this erroneous assumption. However, the deception threatens to unravel when the BBC decides to do a series of relays that's outside broadcast to you and me from various locations around the country featuring several local variety acts. One of these locations is Moons in Mayfair, and wouldn't you know it, Mary's dad is the broadcast engineer operating the sound desk that night, so we'll find out that Mary isn't there. As it begins to dawn on him that there is another Moons, he asks his boss, John Watt, played by John Watt, what this place in Soho is like. What sort of a place is this? Oh, it's a bit on the down and down, you know. One of those places that takes the rest out of restaurant, puts the din into dinner. They don't wait for a raid there to go under the table. John Watt there, who was actually playing a version of himself because he was, in real life, a BBC producer and presenter. For my money, John Watt steals the show, delivering his lines, almost all of which are laugh lines, with sardonic nonchalance. And contemporaneous reviewers of the film agreed with me, saying of his performance, We had the urbane comparing of John Watt, whose airy patter is itself a comedy bulwark. And John Watt gets most of the laughs with his laconic wisecracking. And... John Watt of the BBC gives an outstanding performance as a compare and is certainly a film revelation. This is a place I heard about this morning, Moon Soho. It's one of those night places, you know, where you feel sophisticated and can't pronounce it. What do you mean? Well, the flesh may be willing, but the spirits are much too strong. So I thought we might match this one up with the Moon's Club Mayfair. What do you think about it? Moon's? Is this the place where your daughter's working? Oh, no. You don't think she got mixed with her moons? Oh, no, no, no. Mary's at the Mayfair Club. We were talking about it only the other day. Or perhaps she's stuttered. According to the biography of John Watt, written by his wife, Watt was offered several film roles after Saturday Night Review, but turned them all down, preferring to concentrate on radio. But back to the nail-biting plot, and there's not much more of it. The lovers are separated for a short time after a car accident causes Jimmy to suffer horrific long-term disfiguring facial injuries, but miraculously they weren't as long-term or as horrific as we were led to believe, and he's his normal grinning self by the end of the film, The End. Genuine Soho locations are few and far between in this film, and on the only occasion we do see real streets they're cloaked in darkness and back-projected. The film was actually made in a now defunct production facility in Welland Garden City called Wellin Studios. I hadn't heard of Wellin Studios and knew nothing about them, but I suspected that one particular friend of the show might be able to shed some light on this. That friend is Richard Luck, film critic of the New European and a resident of Welland Garden City. 
Rich has been on the show before, talking about the shakedown in episode 20. Richard, I said, can you tell me anything about Welling Studios? Yes, he said, I can. And he did. Welcome to Welling Garden City, Hertfordshire's true home of film. I'm Richard Luck, film critic of the New European and proud Welling Garden citizen. And I'm popping up on Soho Bites to tell you to ignore Elstree and leave Leavesden well alone. That's right, when it comes to finding Hollywood in Hertfordshire, your journey should begin and end here, in Welling Garden City, the groundbreaking town that not only gave shredded wheat to the world, also the 1980s pop goddess Kim Wilde, and the great, and very sadly recently late, Eunice Stubbs. But of course, there's so much more to Welling Garden than that. In 1927, visionary genius A.E. Bundy had the genius vision that was Welling Studios. Located on Broadwater Road, sat bang in the middle of Welling Garden City's factory district, Welling Studios was itself a factory, one that produced dreams. The Night Has Eyes from 1942, starring James Mason, and Last Holiday from 1950, starring Alec Guinness, were just two of the motion pictures that emerged from Welling Studios during its brief but breathtaking lifespan. But what could bring the likes of Messrs Mason and Guinness to little old Welling Garden? Well, it certainly couldn't hurt that the town is but 30 minutes from the heart of London's fashionable London. And what about the local attractions? Rent a paddle boat and take a spin around Stanborough Lakes. Enjoy a half at the Cherry Tree Inn or peruse the well-stocked shelves of the Welling Department Store. The choice is yours. Welling Studios was not just a filmmaking facility, mind you. It was also a production company. A production company as daring and forward-looking as the town from which it took its name. Were it not for Welling Studios, the world might have been denied 1937's salacious Soho Expose Saturday Night Review. And who else but Welling Studios would have had the artistic courage and or downright craziness to play home to an adaptation of Hitler's Mein Kampf, and this before tea on the first day of the test match that was World War II. And then, of course, there was Brighton Rock. Those brave bolting boys might have shot their exteriors on the bracing south coast, but when it came to taking the action inside, Roy and John and young Dickie Attenborough made a beeline for Welling Garden City to Broadwater Road and Welling Studios. Like all dreams, you have to wake up eventually. The harsh realities of the austerity era meant that Welling Pictures was a thing of the past come the mid-1950s. Gates that had once opened for Alfred Hitchcock, Bella Lugosi and local girl Dinah Sheridan were shuttered for the final time in 1957. But if you could take Welling Pictures out of the jewel of the home counties, you couldn't take the pictures out of Welling Garden City. Whether it's Edgar Wright coming here to film Hot Fuzz and The World's End, or Rob Lowe scuttling about shooting that god-awful ITV police drama of his. There will always be moving pictures in Welling Garden City. A garden city that's always on the grow.
Thank you, Richard. I'm now fully informed. To talk about Saturday Night Review, I contacted Dr Lawrence Napper. Lawrence is a lecturer in film studies at King's College London and specialises in popular British cinema from the interwar years. We met up outside the cafe at Victoria Embankment Gardens, which is why you may be able to detect the presence of the general public milling about. Thank you for coming on the programme. I, I often begin these conversations with our esteemed guests, especially if I introduce them to the film, to ask for a, you know, a rough thumbs up, thumbs down on the film. But I'm not going to let you give your opinion till I've given mine, which is that I love this film. I found it fascinating. I found it charming and really funny, particularly John Watt. So I've laid my cards on the table now. So if you hate it, I'm going to look not, not as cool as you. I don't know, why would it be not cool to... Cool kids always say, no, don't like that, you yeah. know, if they've been a bit... <laughs> you know. They do always say that, don't they? And they're quite often wrong, and they're obviously wrong in this case. Exactly. This is a great movie. It is a good oh, movie. I mean, you agree it's a fascinating and fabulous movie and has fabulous parts. I wouldn't say it was a great, complete package, mm. but I came with relatively low expectations. You know, it doesn't really have any stars that you've heard of. You know, it's a kind of variety, kind of line-up structure. And there are lots of movies like that in the 30s, which are you you kind of sitting watching the film thinking, blimey, is there going to be any good acts here? Yeah. Like, some of these are really crap. Some of the acts weren't great. Some of the, the acts weren't great in this, but, I mean, there were quite a lot that were great. And also the sort of framing structure really worked quite well. And there were some people who actually emerge as real kind of star potential yeah. um, that although we've never heard of them like, I would totally watch another film with John Watt in it I don't think he did anymore I mean I think he just did I mean that was him being a I mean, version of him wasn't he I mean as it turns out he was a star he was a star of the radio and he did a lot of radio and was the kind of basically the kind of voice of BBC Light Entertainment but he didn't he chose not to do any more films after yeah this, it was a shame because he's got comic potential <laughs> how typical is this film of films like that of its time is it is it a cut above the rest or is it about i, I mean it is there are a lot of films that are like this that do this kind of thing where they basically collect together a lot of kind of cabaret acts or kind of variety acts that are not super headliners but are relatively well known and they find an excuse to kind of gather them all together and put them in a movie i mean usually about putting on a show and they vary immensely in terms of quality there are some really great ones so there's one called Say It With Flowers, which is kind of my favourite, which is, you know, it's like a Cockney Costa kind of community and one of them falls ill and they need to raise enough money to, to go away for a break. And they put on a music <laughs> hall... that. <laughs> they put on a music hall show and it's basically a kind of showcase of all the greatest music hall stars of that period. Mm. And it's brilliant. But there are other of those kinds of films which are kind of a bit of a chore to watch. So, that, I mean, that's why I was saying I was like... Before I saw this, I was like, mm, OK, well, we'll just see what this yeah. is like, reserve judgment. I think some of the, some of the acts are, that aren't that good are mercifully quite short. Like the guy, is it Reg Bolton up in Blackpool? And he's, the oh, he's just finger. been boxing. Oh, I didn't see his fist coming <laughs> to my face. Oh, <laughs> awful. It's weird. I mean, it is, I mean, that's one of the things that's really interesting about these films, isn't it? You can sort of, like, you know all those acts were popular, and it's like, have they survived or have they not? And I think some of those comedy acts are the kind of... I mean, he's in a kind of Rob Wilton style, isn't he? He's And, and indeed in a kind of um, Dan Leno style. Oh, right, yeah. And actually, you know, Dan Leno has this kind of titanic reputation. If you listen to some of the recordings of his acts, it's like, no, oh, it's not that funny. No, I've heard the kind of reproduction... There was a BBC 
kind of reimagining, I think using his original scripts and things, yeah, which they're, wasn't hilarious. They're not hilarious. But I mean, there are other acts. I mean, you think the, the two guys playing the gangster drivers. Oh, Stanford and McNaughton. Stanford and McNaughton. And they didn't do anything much else, I think, in, in terms of cinema. But no. I think, it's, I mean, they have a few tiny little bits where they get to do a bit of kind of cross-talking. And I think they're fab. They're not, they are a variety act being showcased in the film. But they're not a variety act that's been showcased in the show within the film. No, they are characters. They yeah. are playing characters. Like Plug, played by George... Georgie Harris. Georgie Harris. I mean, he just looks like he was a variety act. Little and chap. I think he was a variety. I mean, but he also, he does have quite a good career in films. So he would have been f- familiar to cinema audiences. He was Leslie Fuller's sidekick in quite a lot of comedy films that sort of are at the same kind of level as Saturday Night Review. So they're okay. sort of, you know, they're programmers, they're not super expensive headline films, but they are, I guess you could describe them as cheap and cheerful. They're relatively low budget. They rely on those two stars to really carry them. So he would be, he, he was quite a star, I think. Okay. He was quite Is Saturday Night Review, would it count as a quota quickie? It um, looks quite, I mean, some of it looks quite lush, but then maybe <laughs> they've got just money to like stick cameras in a nightclub. And I think yes and no okay. is the answer. I mean, I guess a quota, like to be a real quota quickie to the letter of the definition, the film has to be basically funded and distributed by an American company on the basis that they don't think anybody will book it. This looks like a relatively cheap, it's, it's clearly not as expensive as the sort of A films that are coming out from British studios, like Gomont British and like Corder's London films. But it's not, you know, it's not at the very bottom level. And I think importantly, it's distributed by Pathé, and it's, I mean, as far as I can work out, Welland Films is a sort of, it's connected to Associated British uh, Film Company, and they are sort of, their reputation is for making a lot of these kinds of mid-level movies. They're not that ambitious in terms of promoting stars or wanting to kind of get their films into the American market. They're quite happy to make films that are kind of relatively... Steady earners. Steady earners, Mm. yeah. Um, and in fact, Norman Lee does a lot of stuff with them. So Norman Lee, was he, and along with them, Vernon Clancy, were they, were they kind of jobbing people in the... Yeah, the, basically. OK. Because he did, knocked out a lot of films in a short space of time, didn't he? Yeah, he makes a lot of films in a, in a relatively short space of time. He's on contract to ABPC. You know, he's just a kind of regular... I mean, you know, straightforward... Competent director. Yeah, competent director yeah. making straightforward films. Quite often the films are based on stage shows or... You could say, well, he's not Hitchcock, darling. Yeah. You know, he's just, like, <laughs> taking the commissions and doing this stuff. He's not an auteur, is he? He's not an auteur. But, I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this film is it doesn't look super cheap, but also it's clearly not super expensive. Mm. And part of the way in which it actually looks quite glossy without being that expensive is that it's got a real kind of graphic style... So there's a bit where you go for the first time to the film studio and the film studio is conveyed through a series of really quite simple shots. You know, you get an outside of broadcasting house shot and then you get, you get a swinging door and a notice on the door saying something like, you know, please be quiet, recording in progress. And then it moves to another shot, which is sort of, it's really elegantly composed shot of effectively a microphone. And that's enough to indicate that you're in a, film st- in a, in a recording studio there's no need to build a set. Like they no. use these really clear, simple, graphic kind of language. And it's cheap. And that's cheap. Yeah. But it also looks beautiful on the film. And I wonder if they did shoot it at Broadcasting House, because th- there's, a, there's a fantastic clock. Do you notice that clock? Yeah, the clock. The spiral fab. thing on it. That looks amazing. 
but I don't think so. I, mean, I think that was just you know something that they designed on the set. Okay, and I can reveal, being an employee who works at Broadcasting House, we don't wear evening jackets <laughs> to operate the consoles anymore, or smoke, uh, or, or just decide to do a multi-location outside broadcast that evening. Um, Although, funnily enough, I mean, I think the implication, I think, and I think it's true that, that actually those broadcasts were pretty frequent. You know, John yeah. Watt is known for doing these exactly the kind of broadcast that's depicted. You know, these kinds of like, and now we go over to, yeah. you know, this Mayfair hotel, this club in Soho, this other place. You know, and it's a sort of like a kind of melange variety show. There's lots of films which do that as well. There's a film called Music Hath Charms. There's one called Radio Parade of 1935. There's a lot of these kinds of movies which are kind of, you know, linked to radio and radio's tendency to create these kind of variety shows, which kind of, I mean, I suppose in my PhD mode, I would say, attempt to express the nation. So they're like, draw, like, notice how this one, there's an act from Edinburgh, there's an act from Manchester, there's an act from Blackpool. So there's a sense in which the radio show itself is kind of creating the idea that we're all a national audience, yeah. we're all sitting together listening to these various different parts of... On the relay, as they call it. <laughs> John, this isn't Moon's Club. Yes, it is, darling. Perhaps you mean the other Moon, sir, the one in Mayfair. Quite a lot of people make that mistake. Oh, there are two. Oh, I see. Yes. That's a little awkward, isn't it, sir? Thank you very much. So the plot hinges on the, the confusion between the two nightclubs. Moon's Mayfair, which is basically Café de Paris, and a sort of generic Soho club that yeah. have the same name. In the Soho moons, there are Asian people, black people in the audience, not performers, yeah. and there's a brief shot of two women dancing together. Yeah. I don't know if, there's, if that's supposed to be, I don't know if they're suggesting they're a same-sex couple, or are they just two women having a dance? But it does seem to fit in with this idea that Soho was louche and bohem and anything goes. I mean, is that how you read those scenes? Yes, absolutely. I, that, that, I mean, I think that's clearly what we're supposed to understand. And I think actually the presence of those people of colour in the, in the audience indicates that, actually, for the audience of the time. They would know that posh West End nightclubs would have a colour bar and bohemian Soho clubs wouldn't have a colour bar. Okay. So I think that's, I mean, I think that's like, you know, that's an explicit signal right there. Because it, it didn't jump out at me at first because I'm because you know it's 2021 we've seen all different yeah, races yeah no, but and it's quite it's it's quite cleverly done I think I mean the, the film doesn't make a big deal of it does it no. they're just sort of there and also I think the kind of figure of the of the kind of maitre d the Italian guy who's Monty kind of, Monty who's really overplayed you know and so he's associated with Italian with the Italian community and with entertainment so there's a sense in which that's another kind of signal for Soho I guess and the other thing one of the bits of the films I really adore is Stanford and McNaughton yeah they, they have a little bit of a crosstalk sort of bit which is about lighting a cigar oh yeah and, you know there they are lighting that he's trying to kind of light his cigar without burning his nose and eventually it you know the kind of punchline is they both put the cigars in their mouth and they light the cigars off each other but it looks like they're embracing yeah and then it kind of cuts to the gangster who says ooh boys yeah, yeah. you know it does like they're going in for a snog doesn't it yeah, it, yeah. and that's the joke you yeah. know so, and, and I think that is also a kind of indication that this is kind of louche nightclub as opposed to a sort of respectable nightclub. And also there's gangsters, that means like... Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and, the, and the classic drunk doctor <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it's got everybody you want in, yeah. a, in, a, in the kind of louche nightclub that you'd wish that still existed. So an audience at the time, would it be seen as risque to put those things on screen? Or is it, or is it be, it's just an indication? Do you know I, I think mean? it's an indication. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's as far as it could go. I, I think that, you know, all these films are 
subject to censorship and the censors would definitely sort of pick up on stuff. Although actually, interesting enough, the censors, they read the scripts. So if you can find a way of including indications that your nightclub is a bit loose, but not in dialogue but not in dialogue then that's that's the way to do it and that's clearly what this film does and do you think the women dancing were just women dancing or do i don't think the director is short of male oh, and yeah. female extras i think he's made a decision to have two women dancing yeah so i think it probably does mean that yeah interesting it's good it does look like a fantastic place i would love to go to that club <laughs> apart Although from the hill run the risk of getting shot of course. yeah that's true yeah Let's talk about the style of music. I didn't have a single care. There was such a gorgeous mood. I felt as happy as could be. Then I had a very pleasant surprise. My future bumped right into me. This style of music, particularly the female voices, I mean, this film with Sally Gray, but also Jesse Matthews had a very, to our ears, peculiar singing style. Is it soprano? I mean, it's very, very high and warbly. Was this what was popular music at the time? Was this in the 30s equivalent of the hit parade? Yes, I mean, I okay. think that these are popular swing okay. numbers. Yes, absolutely. And they and people would normally buy the sheet music rather than a recording. They would, I mean, the, the hit parade is like, it's a hit or not, depending on the sales of the sheet music. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't recordings. Okay. So there are loads of recordings, but quite often it's the, it, I mean, it's the song that's the hit. It's not that recording. So like, Over My Shoulder was a big hit for Jesse Matthews and there she is, she sings it in Evergreen, and there is a recording of her singing it. But there's also like 15 other recordings of it by other dance bands with other soloists. So it's not like, there's not the same relationship between the artist and the song okay. in the hit parade as there is nowadays. And but, Sally Gray, was she, a, was she a big popular star? I would say she's on the sort of third run of stars. Oh, right, I thought she was much higher than that. Actually. She's, she's well liked by her fans, but she's not, I mean, I don't know of any recordings by her. I don't think she's a recording star. Okay. Um, and she's in, a, you know, she's in quite a few Elstree films. I mean, I suppose most famously she's, uh, she's in the film version of The Lambeth Walk. But she's in quite a few, I think she's in Nova She Goes, which is a Stanley um, Lupino film. She's, you know, she's the kind of leading um, uh, woman in lots of, in lots of those kinds of films. But she's not, she's not a mega star. I mean, she's not a star of the magnitude, shall we say, of Jesse Matthews. Okay. <laughs> so Jesse Matthews was the number one British female star at that time. Jesse and Gracie, I think, you know, so you think how different they okay, are, you yeah. know, Jesse Matthews is doing this over elocuted stuff and she's all kind of terribly West End and Gracie is very much, you know, here I am from Lancashire. Yeah. But actually, even if you listen to Gracie Fields' songs, they have that warbly quality, you know, yeah. some of the songs are very much, here I am doing a kind of serious operatic sort of number and it has that dated, I guess, quality to us. When did that style of music fade away? I mean, I think it's to do with recording technology, actually. A lot of those singing styles come out of theatre and before there was amplification in the theatre, you had to get your voice to the back of the gods. Mm. You couldn't sing in a sort of throaty, breathy style because it just wouldn't carry across. Yeah, Billie Holiday wouldn't carry, would Billie you? Holiday wouldn't yeah. work. And Billie Holiday is, you know, in nightclubs with a microphone. And it's the microphone that changes the singing style, I think. And so what you're seeing in, those, in that sort of like transition from like whatever, 1920 through to 19. 
I mean, I guess when, when would you say it goes out of fashion? It sort of goes out of fashion by the 1950s. It's certainly gone by the time rock and roll comes along. Yeah. And is it a British thing? Were we not as cool no, as the Americans? No, no. American okay. singers are doing that same sort of... I mean, they don't do it as much, but Catherine Grayson is a big American star. But it, it just takes a long... It takes 20 years for that, for that sort of transition to happen fully. You could imagine Sally Gray standing by a piano in an Edwardian parlour singing some song. These are some the boy with the bright blue eyes who bloody bloody blood, you know. For nineteen thirty seven an Edwardian parlour is only as long ago as yeah. like the year two thousand is to us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like why not? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And she looks like um Jean Harlow. I mean she looks amazing. She's yeah. incredibly sort of thin and tall and blonde and she really wears those sometimes quite bizarre clothes. Yeah, very bizarre, yeah. Andy Pandy suit. But those Andy Pandy suits are, you know, they are being marketed in the newspapers. So if you look at the kind of coverage for the film, there's a there's a company called Film Fashions Limited which dresses her in the film. Yes, I saw and that. they're advertising those dresses, you know, kind of versions of those dresses in department stores. <laughs> You were quite excited, well, I say quite excited, you, you, you slightly raised an eyebrow <laughs> at the presence of Webster, Webster Booth, Booth, who I had to look up because I'd never heard of him. Is he, are you a, his number one fan? I think probably I am now his number one fan, although I can't, you know, I'm, not, I'm not that much of a fan. I've got a couple of his records, what can I say? But yeah, Webster Booth, I'm familiar with because I used to, when I was a child, I used to collect 78 gramophone records. And of course, like, you really get a sense of what is super popular in the period because there's loads of them second hand and Ziegler and Webster Booth yes he had a partnership didn't he they uh, pop up a lot in the sort of you know in the, in the junk shops when you're looking for, for old records and they're a, I mean they're a great example of exactly that thing so and Ziegler and Webster Booth certainly by the time I was collecting my grandmother was like oh my god why are you collecting those and to her they were really sort of slightly naff interesting like Edwardian okay. style singers who managed to survive through until the 1930s but he, had, he did have a career well into the 60s. As a slightly naff Edwardian okay. style. Oh, OK, tenor. right, right, right. Oh, so he, he, had, he had his niche market that he stuck to. I think he had his niche market. I mean, he was, I mean, I suppose you, you just think, well, today it's like, you know, you've got Jane McDonald and you've got, you know, whatever the latest pop star is. And, you know, they still have a market. They still exist. Yeah, the woman stars. who sang from Britain's Got Talent who sang, what's her name? Scottish woman who sang Les Mis songs. Oh, yes, Susan Boyle. Susan Boyle, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's, there are plenty of popular stars today who are not necessarily you know, cool or yeah. down with the kids, but they still sell shared loads of records. I think not cool is the new cool anyway. <laughs> and Billy Milton, he, IMDb, he, comes, he, he gets top billing, but I think Sally Gray is the star. Definitely. But Billy Milton did have a career for quite a long time, and, and then he crops up in um, The Small World of Sammy Lee, as a hardware shop owner, this has been flagged up to me. I need to go back and watch it because I can't remember him. So he, he had a long, long, long career. He's got a long career. And I think, does he do television later? Yeah, he does. Yeah. But I mean, as a star, he's pretty inadequate, I would suggest. Yeah. To you. I mean, he's a bit nothing, isn't he? He is a bit, like, yeah. He wouldn't get excited in your pants for Billy Milton or whatever he's called. No. And there's a scene where they both go back to Sally Gray's parents' house and they have a little menage a quatre around yeah. looking at the paper. And his timing is horrendous. They'll say, Mary sings in moons, did you know that? Five second pause. Well, I should because I sing with her. <laughs> what? Surely, come on. I th as a director, we say, come on, pick up the lines, pick up the lines. Yeah, he's not great. But somebody who is a star, 
as far as I'm concerned, is John Watt. Was he a revelation to you? Let's just explain John Watt was playing himself. I mean, he was a revelation to me. I, I mean, I didn't really know who he was. And, you know, shame on me, I should have known who he was because it turns out he was a big kind of news on the radio. And, you know, he walks on and you just sort of think, oh, you know, some old bloke playing the radio controller. And he basically steals the entire film. He does, yeah. He's so sort of insouciant. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that actually that is his job. But there's a bit where he, you know, when he's supposed to be announcing, he's like lounging basically <laughs> over the counter in his evening suit. And, you know, the guy turns off the radio and kind of fades into him and he's just sipping a bit of thing and he's just like, blah, 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 in this incredibly relaxed way. There's something really charming about him. And, of course, he also gets most of the best lines in the film, I think. And he's got the line where they all say... Mr. Watt, what? Mr. Watt, what? Mr. Watt, what? Oh, goodness. Will Hayes spend a whole career out of this kind of thing, which must have been very funny for contemporary yeah, audiences. I mean, that's a perfect, that's yeah. a perfect little gag yeah. there. And he's just brilliant at delivering it. There's something very natural about him, which I guess, you know, is not a surprise because he was incredibly successful as a radio announcer mm. and as a radio kind of... Um, uh, kind of continuity presented but actually in terms of presenting exactly the kind of shows that you see him presenting in the film and he was also I think involved in writing those shows though it's like I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if those lines are actually his do you know what I mean I wouldn't yeah, be surprised yeah. he came up with some of those a day or two before we did this recording you said by email that you had become obsessed with this dancer and the power of the internet told me that this was Snake Hips Johnson Snake Hips Johnson was a huge star, but he doesn't get a credit. Is that quite unusual? Yeah, that's weird. I, I'm, I'm not sure why that is, and I'm starting to think maybe it's because that sequence was cut in later. Okay. Because he doesn't get mentioned in any of the publicity. So the film is made in the summer of 1937. Mm. goes out to cinemas in the summer of 1938. This is really dweeby. Dweeby is what we do. His first broadcast on the radio, Snake Hips Johnson's, is not until the beginning of 1938. So okay. at the point where the film is being made, he's not, you know, he's not, he's not a star. He's not that He's not that famous in terms of the radio. So I wonder if they sort of thought, oh, you know, we've got this new star now. Like, let's put a bit of footage of him in. It is that bit where they say, oh, well, we're not going to go over to Moons just yet. We've mm. got a we've got a late minute edition, yeah. and now we're going to go to a cabaret, and all you get is that shot of of him dancing. And the, the only other kind of example of him, I think, on film, in feature film anyway, is from a film called Oh Daddy, which is from a couple of years earlier. Is there any other cabaret people that... Oh, the, the Royal Kilty Juniors. I don't think I have anything to say about right. the Royal Kilty Juniors. I've got nothing Junior. to say about the Royal Kilty Juniors, have I? <laughs> other than the Royal Kilty Juniors are in the film. <laughs> but I, guess, I mean, one thing I did want to, like, I don't know, I just kind of emphasise is that idea that the way in which the film incorporates the crosstalk acts, the crosstalk bits, but, I mean, with John Watt and also with Stanford and McNaughton, it's kind of typical of British cinema of this period. There's quite a lot of films where there's a little bit of crosstalk like that, and then later on in the film there's a really long sequence of, of a kind of that kind of comedy. And one of the reasons why I suggest it's worth like looking at these obscure films and thinking, well, you know, there might be something, is because sometimes you get real gems of comedy in those crosstalk uh, sequences. And would they have been just chunks of their act transposed I to the screen? I think they would have yeah. been definitely chunks of their act. They're really, they're, you know, they're the kind of thing you can drop in. There's one that Flanagan and Allen do in a film called A Fire Has Been Arranged, which is a quota quickie, I mean, it is a proper quota quickie, where they're basically sort of misunderstanding each other for about four minutes about whether they're going to go down the stairs or not. And it's just like, it's joyous and completely not. There is a double act who are auditioning for John Watt playing 
these weird instruments that are called stall cellos or stall violins, which basically a violin Stal with violins, with yeah. a Horn, horn attached and they were another established double act they play really badly I yeah, suggest. yeah and then at the very end one of them turns to the other and says kiss me yes <laughs> like i'm sorry what yes Excuse me. that double act is so odd yeah and then they appear <laughs> and they disappear what are, are we not going to see them again you can't introduce somebody so peculiar to the film and not have a minute again that's one of the reasons i find it so fascinating it feels like you're having a little glimpse into a time so I remember showing my kids an episode of Top of the Pops, an episode from the sort of late 70s when I was an avid Top of yeah, the Pops watcher. Yeah. And it was Pan's People or Legs and Co dancing to something. And they were just kind of going, ooh, wiggling the bums at the camera. And my son, who was maybe 10, was going, seriously, Dad? <laughs> seriously? And I was slightly embarrassed that like, oh, this is what we watched in those days, you know. And nobody in those days was like, this is really weird. What are no, we doing? No, it's just standard. So I suppose in the 30s, if you got two guys in top hats and detachable collars nearly half off, playing weird instruments, so that's what passed for entertainment. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, it, it would be lovely to go back and just, like, check out some of those. Oh, amazing, yeah. Because there must have been, like, thousands of them. Yeah. You know, there's every variety theatre of the country is open and running, you know, seven days a week. That is a Three lot shows of, a day. That's a lot of weird acts. Yeah. What is it attracts you personally to this era? I mean, all this weirdness. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, it makes it makes it makes complete sense. It is a very weird time, isn't it? It is a very to our ears and eyes. I mean, I think the people are so great about it is I'm sure the 1840s had plenty of weird stuff, but we can see this stuff in the films and the style of them is like that. The whole look of the film, there's something really seductive. The DVD that I think it's produced by Network, isn't it? This it's absolutely pristine quality. It's, it's gorgeous, it's isn't amazing. it? And there are some shots where you just think, you know, that could just be a, you know, I'd have that on the wall. Yeah, yeah. There are some close-ups of Sally Gray where she looks astonishing. Yeah, she looks amazing. She looks like Greta Garbo, doesn't she, in yeah, some of them, with the litter from below. Yeah, yeah and they're just beautifully lit. And, I mean, things like, you know, the clock, the, the, like those clock. designs. It's brilliant. It looks amazing. Thank you, Lawrence, for coming on Soho Bites and for lending me that biography of John Watt. I will return it to you in pristine condition as soon as I've finished it. And now, it's that moment you've all been waiting for. Competition time! So to be in with a chance of winning an unopened DVD of Saturday Night Review, still wrapped in its original genuine cellophane, all you have to do is go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites and leave a night review of the show. Moments before recording the next episode, I'll choose one lucky, lucky winner at random and announce it on the next show. I say at random, but if you happen to mention that the presenter is very handsome and has lovely long wavy hair, you might improve your chances of being chosen. So that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites, and I wish you the very best of luck. The other important URL you'll need to know is SohoBitesPodcast.com, which is, of course, the show notes for every episode. If you click on the Saturday Night Review poster, you'll find details about all three of my esteemed guests for this episode and their various publications, plus other interesting odds and ends about the film, the Café de Paris, and about the late, great Ken Snakehips Johnson. Remember, you can always get in touch with the show with your comments and suggestions via Twitter. We're on at Soho, and our email address is SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. That's it for now. Take good care of yourselves, and I'll see you next month. <laughs> <laughs>